This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a spooky barber and Halloween-themed episode for you. We're going to be looking at coins and medals that feature sort of macabre or gory themes uh, in honor of the in honor of the upcoming uh, holiday. And we also have a great interview with John Frost, the president of the Barber Coin Collectors Society, uh, the largest organization dedicated to studying the coins of Charles Barber and to a lesser extent his father, William Barber. Uh, we had a wonderful interview with him. So this is no tricks, all treats for you this week. If you're liking the Coin World podcast, please subscribe, listen to it through coinworld.com or whatever podcast provider you use. Before we get into the spooky stuff, Laura Garden Frazier's life again makes an appearance on the pod for uh, This Week in History. Jeff, what was happening? So let's go back to 1921. It's October 27th in 1921. Of course, we've talked about Laura Garden Frazier before, and we've talked about the coin that went on sale then. For that day was the day that the Alabama state coin, Centennial, went on sale. Now, what was notable about this coin? It showed Warren G. Harding, then president, and it showed Thomas Kilby, who was the governor of Alabama, and it was designed by Laura Garden Frazier. We've talked about her. Interestingly, that same day, October 27th, but 10 years later, 1931 now, Laura Garden Frazier makes a return appearance, and that was when she won a second design contest to create the design for the Washington quarter, which would be issued for his bicentennial of birth in 1932. So it's very fitting that a woman we've talked about, an artist we've talked about, is this week in history because it it sort of brings back some of the past episodes, you know, that we've done. Now, you mentioned Barber earlier. Mm -hmm. I hope, I hope that you're not talking about Sweeney Todd because (laughs) that would not be not be a good that'd barber. That would be a rather close shave. Yes. Um, or or I, I'm thinking the way my hair looks today that my barber is Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> but but really, uh, tell me tell me what's going on. <laughs> so your allusion to, to barber is apt, not only as well as of our interview, but also because Charles Barber, whose coins the uh, Barber Coin Collector Society generally celebrates, is not responsible solely for the Barber subsidiary coinage that so many people know him for. The circulating stuff. Yeah, the circulating stuff. For those uninitiated listening, Charles Barber was the chief engraver of the U.S. Mint, and he was responsible for designing the dime, quarter dollar, and half dollar that were minted and circulated between 1892 and 1916. But he is also known for designing a number of commemorative coins, among them the 1900 Lafayette Dollar which was America's very first commemorative dollar coin designed and minted in 1899 to raise funds for the American exhibit at the World's Fair in Paris in 1900. So, and the Lafayette dollar is notable for a number of reasons. Not only is it the first commemorative silver dollar um, ever produced, it's also the first to feature a U.S. citizen 
on its coinage because both the Marquis de Lafayette, who the coin commemorates, and George Washington, whose bust appears alongside Lafayette's on the obverse, both of them were U.S. citizens. Now, as we've talked about in previous coverage of commemorative coins, the very first real-life people to appear on U.S. coins were Christopher Columbus and Queen Isabella of Spain, who appeared on the Colombian commemorative coinage of 1892 and 1893. But now we're going into 1899, where the U.S. is gearing up to appear in the 1900 World's Fair in Paris. And to raise funds to create a statue of Lafayette for the exhibit, the government needed to raise funds, and they decided to try to sell a commemorative coin to acknowledge the event. Now, Lafayette himself was a very fitting choice for the coin and for a statue in the exhibit, because his personal history, which I find absolutely fascinating, uh, intersects at crucial points in American history. So to give a little bit of background on the man, um, he was born into French uh, into the French aristocracy and was actually commissioned as an officer of the French army at the age of 13 in 1770. And uh, in the late 1770s, as America declared independence in 1776 and the Revolutionary War, commenced as we uh, fought for independence against Great Britain, Lafayette was actually so inspired that he actually bought a sh his own ship at a cost of 112,000 pounds and sailed against the orders of his family and government to the United States in 1777, where he met with American military officials. He was actually commissioned when he arrived in 1777 as a major general, and he served throughout the Revolutionary War, both as a commanding officer in the field, combating British troops up and down the eastern seaboard. He also returned to France in 1779 and into 1780 to help lobby the French government to provide additional funds and arms and soldiers for the American war. And in fact, he then participated and helped to break the siege at the Battle of Yorktown, which actually ended the Revolutionary War in 1783. And yet, the amazing parts of his life weren't yet over, because when he returned to France, he actually participated in the French Revolution in 1789 and actually became a member of the National Assembly and was actually commissioned as commander-in-chief of the French Revolutionary Army, the National Guard, until 1792, when the French king escaped execution. He was blamed as a royalist, and he was actually imprisoned between 1792 and 1797 when he was freed by Napoleon. Napoleon then offered him a series of different honors and positions in the government and military, all of which he turned down because he was deeply committed to democracy. So he basically retired from public life through most of the Napoleonic period, and he even turned down an offer to become a dictator in France. During the 1830 revolution, the revolutionaries sought him out to install him as the new ruler, but he again declined, citing his firm belief in democracy. But in 1824 and 1825, shortly before the, next Fr the French Revolution of 1830, he actually returned to the United States and received a hero's welcome, and he went on a tour of the country where he was received by adoring crowds all these different places, and he went to Boston, scooped up a little bit of soil from Bunker Hill, and actually brought it back with him to have it sprinkled over his grave when he died. So he got a little bit of soil from Bunker Hill and toured the country in 1824 and 1825. And when he died, they made good on that promise, and a bunch of soil from Bunker Hill is actually spread over his grave. He died in 1834. He was known as the hero of two worlds for his fight for democracy, both in North America and the American colonies, and in his home country of France. And so his likeness appears, his bust and George Washington's bust, both appear in the obverse of the Lafayette dollar, which was designed and minted in 1899, Although it had the date 1900 struck on it, they were actually all minted in December of 1899. 
And the coins ultimately did not sell very well. 50,026 of them were ordered to be minted and were minted, but then 14,000 of them were actually ultimately melted as they remained unsold. So the Lafayette dollar remains a very sought-after collectible commemorative dollar, as not only as America's first commemorative silver dollar, but as a coin that pays homage to one of the most extraordinary figures in both early American and French history. Yes, and Lafayette has actually been featured on many medals and coins from the Monnaie de Paris, the French mint. He is one of those figures that I think modern day Americans don't know much about and don't appreciate how important he was to the cause for revolution. And you make me want to go get that coin now because I, <laughs> no, I have I... a fondness for Lafayette and appreciation. And I just. Well, you might get a real kick out of this. My dad's alma mater is Lafayette College. I went to Lafayette High School. So there. Really? Yes. Oh, no kidding. Yes. Yeah. So oh, my, dad, uh, my dad went to Lafayette College. Um, which was named, when they founded the college back in the 1820s, they, it was founded right around the time that Lafayette visited, and I guess the people who founded the college in eastern Pennsylvania were great admirers of Lafayette, so in my, my as, father uh, as went As we there. should be he today. College. Oh, absolutely. No, we, he, is, he is a largely, he's a at least partially forgotten, but deeply important figure in American and French history. And, and his coin was designed to be clear by Charles Barber who was responsible for subsidiary coins, Charles Barber designed the 1899-1900 Lafayette dollar. And Charles Barber, his dad also designed coins, right? Yeah, he did. Tell me about his dad. William Barber was the chief engraver of the U.S. Mint between 1869 and his death in 1879, and then his son, Charles Barber, took over... Sounds like a little nepotism. Little nepotism. His son took over after his death in 1879, and he's responsible for designing the trade dollar and a whole bunch of patterns, which are which we'll discuss in a future episode. But those are basically proposed coin designs that never get used, but they strike trial pieces, which are known as patterns. He designed a number of major patterns and the U.S. trade dollar, as well as the 20 cent piece. William Barber only designed the reverse of the 20 cent piece. The obverse was the seated liberty motif, which is the product of Christian Gobrak. Absolutely. So let's talk about the 20 cent piece. So the 20 cent coin, you know, that was a short-lived denomination. It's sort of this quirky anomaly in the American system. It shows the seated liberty design on the obverse by uh, Gobrick, just Christian Gobrick, and the reverse was done by William Barber. So the question, I want to pose the question to you, Chris, but Mm. this is the question for the audience, and we're going to do something a little differently this week. We're going to post this question on Facebook. We're not going to answer it this week. We want you to chime in. Listen to the podcast. We'll post the question, CoinWorld's Facebook account, and throw your answers there. We don't want you to use that Google machine, (laughs) or if you... I mean, it's not as though we can stop you, but... (laughs) Correct. Or or if you prefer, and you still have an AOL account, Bing, or one of these other... My parents are still on AOL. I I, I have friends who are on AOL. That's fine. Yeah, my my parents' email address is at AOL. It's it's uh, Four or five years ago, somebody I know left the area and said, oh, we'll keep in touch. I said, here's my email address. I said, yes, it's on Hotmail, but, you know... (laughs) I was for the best kind of mail. So, in any event, the question this week, and, and we want you to weigh in again, it relates to mm-hmm. the coin partially designed by William Barber. Mm-hmm. The 20 cent piece was struck at what three mints in 1875, the first year of mm-hmm. this coin's issuance? What three mints struck the 20 cent piece? I, I think I know, but I will, I and the audience will collectively ponder our response and we'll, we'll make a post with the yeah. question yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah maybe yeah, yeah. a day after the the uh 
podcast goes live so that you you know there's time yeah. for you to digest it. Yeah, think and about if, it. And if and if you think you know the answer and and you know you're you're quick on the draw and you post quickly on that post, we might mention you. Uh, whoever gets it right first, I think we might give a shout out to we'll uh, in the coming episode. We'll see. We'll see. We we might be generous. <laughs> <laughs> our our generosity truly knows no bounds. Oh well. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So that's a chance for you to play along at home, and we'll get some interaction there. We look forward to that. Now let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked about some spooky themes. We're going to talk mm. about some spooky themes today. Yeah, Halloween's coming up, so it we got to. So we we've got to get our uh, we got to get our scare on. We gotta we gotta scare ourselves a little bit and like check out looking some... at the price tag and some cat coins or something. <laughs> that, you know, population well, one or yeah. Well, in in the same way that uh, that high prices and rare coins might uh, might spook a collector, we uh, we're going to look at some topical themes, some some pictorial themes on coins and medals that are sort of macabre. Or or scary or gory or in some way sort of evocative of the themes of the themes of All Hallows Eve as we approach that most fun of autumnal holidays. Yes. So one of my favorite memes actually is a twist on Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And it's the passive aggressive raven who says, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> So Poe is famous in American literature for his body of ghoulish and ghastly writing and thus quote the raven nevermore. He appears on the uh, American Numismatic Association convention medal for 2008 when the show was in Baltimore. I actually obtained a set of those in bronze and silver. Those are neat. That's pretty cool. And that's, so that's kind of a spooky thing. Uh, you think about another thing too. The modern press, presses that strike coins are pretty sophisticated pieces of equipment, but they weren't always, right? Sure. So go back uh, several centuries and think about how coins were really produced using manpower, and it was men, but human power. The screw press, the idea was you would twist this ring and that would tighten and bring the dies together and using uh, the, I guess, in a sense, hydraulic force, whatever, you know, using the mechanical, the energy. mechanical energy. Yes. Uh, that that would be, would strike the coins and it was very hard work, very lab laborious, but it was also dangerous. So, you understand that this method, even though it um, – OSHA would not approve. Let's put it this way. <laughs> uh, the usage of screw presses often led to the absence of fingers on the part of the mint workers. So that, that to me is gory and sort of fits with our theme of macabre coins and, and metals. You can't really know which coin was struck by a, uh, a mint worker who... Uh, who lost a finger. Who, yeah, who who sacrificed in such well, a manner. If, if you're ever at a coin show or a coin shop and you find a coin stained red or brown or something... Yeah, it brings yeah. a whole new meaning to uh, red, the red-brown designation on a grading label. <laughs> so, no, it, it's, um, you're not going to find it today. But but it, it that's funny. That's a little bit of tri right. trivia, if you sure. will, that, that harkens back to the way sure. coins were made a long time ago. So um, human, there, I'm sure there are other there are metals and there's coins. Can, what else can we talk about? So there are, I mean, human... Sacrifice, <laughs> if you will. Human history is, is shot through with depictions of just the, the most ghastly, you know, violence and depictions of skeletons. And, and, and so, you know, coins and metals and paper notes, but we're going to restrict ourselves more or less to coins and metals just so we're not here all day. 
often depict not only, you know, ghastly violence, but they also depict sort of the human fascination with skeletons. And it seems like there's no day when skeletons are more broadly celebrated than Halloween. So there are all kinds of metals that feature skeletons and feature violent things. In fact, there are actually images of people being executed on coins from the Netherlands under different occupations. Austria occupied the Netherlands for a long time. Spain occupied the Netherlands. And there was often the spot for inter-European or intra-European conflict. And so if you look at coins from the Netherlands from the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, you can often find rather gory depictions of people getting beheaded, their heads are on stakes, all kinds of really spooky things. And Even more interesting are on some British copper medals of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, both British and French medals often feature depictions of guillotines because the guillotine became a very popular method of execution associated often with the French Revolution, apropos of Lafayette. So you can often find British and French copper medals that depict guillotines in that particular style of execution. And also just human skulls, speaking of beheading, appear on lots of different medals. There's an there's actually an especially interesting 1805 medal. It sounds like you're going to give us a, you got to see this. Now, a medal that we're, we're going to post a link in the podcast description. This so this is, is a, you got to see this. Yeah, you, you've got to see this in regards to, in regards to skulls and, and related spooky things. Um, numismogram run by our friend, Jeremy Bostwick, Mighty Mighty Bostwick. That joke is exclusively for our editor. Um, <laughs> numismogram. Which, post this recently. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an Instagram post from the account Numismogram. Um, and they've been doing an absolutely fabulous series of sort of spooky Halloween-themed world medals. Yes. And one that really caught my eye was one honoring Franz Joseph Gall, who was the founder of the sort of intellectual and academic movement Phrenology, which we now, of course, know to be a completely ridiculous pseudoscience. But um, phrenology was the idea that human beings had characteristics that were determined by the shape of your skull. And on a medal from 1805 honoring Franz Joseph Gall, Gall appears on the obverse, pretty pretty regular, but a skull with a, a bit of drapery on it sits on a box on the obverse. And it's a very, it's it's actually, it's a beautiful rendition, actually. And it's it's a really, you know, well uh, well designed. And so it was uh, 1805, also on Numismogram, we'll feature links to to both of these posts, uh, he also features, um, in Belgium, the city of Liege in Belgium, minted a series of medals in the 17th century that depict a pretty classic image associated not only with death and the macabre, but also with pirates, um, with a skull and crossbones. And a whole bunch of different, over a course of a couple of centuries, a bunch of different skull and crossbones medals were minted in Liege for a number of different reasons, and they make for really, really interesting and relatively accessible, you can usually find examples for not a ton of money of these in different auctions and things. And, of course, skeletons appear in all kinds of, of other places in well, yeah. numismatic and exonumic history. I mean, ex- for example, you know, World War I medals. I was of, just going to say, one yeah. of my favorites, the Lusitania medals. Yeah, the medals, Lusitania the, medals, great. The uh, Getz medals, there's there's yep. just some fascinating, great usage of skulls, imagery, uh, skeletons. Uh, and we'll post links to images. Yeah, um, and, and in, our in the past coverage of these things and all that. But one of my favorites, and and we can link to this too, is uh, a few years ago we got to write about. You've heard of Count Dracula? He's sort of the granddaddy of all horror movie villains. This was inspired by a real life classic chomper, Vlad the Impaler, who I think won the Halloween dar- yard decorations contest for. 20 years in a row or something. 
<laughs> I'm sure his neighbors really appreciated it. <laughs> the vampire in Stoker's story is based on the real-life Vlad III Tepes, or Vlad the Impaler. That name came after his death, referring to the bloody tactics he employed against his opponents. Uh, he was son of Vlad Dracul, the dragon, so on and so forth. But anyway, there, there are these coins that were issued by him in what is uh, tra- what was Transylvania, and they come up at auction on occasion. We'll provide a link to uh, a broader history of that. They're really fun, they're really rare, really expensive, but you can at least know a little bit about them. So we hope you've enjoyed our little our little foray into Halloween sort of spooky macabre themed coins and medals. Now, we really hope you enjoy our interview with John Frost, <laughs> shifting gears a little bit into, a, into the interview with John Frost, where we talked to him about not only his own interest in Barber and Liberty Seated coins and his roles in both the Barber Coin Collector Society and Liberty Seated Collectors Club. So we hope you enjoy your interview with him. Take a listen. We're lucky to be joined today by John Frost, the president of the Barber Coin Collector Society and the director of education for the Liberty Seated Collectors Club. Thanks so much for being with us, John. My pleasure. How is it that you became president of the Barber Coin Collector Society? What interested you initially about Barber coinage? Has that always been an area of collecting interest for you? Yes. When I started coin collecting as a kid, and I did like back then, you know, Lincoln cents, but my grandfather when he found out I started collecting coins, gave me a 1911S Barber dime and an 1885 Liberty Seated dime that he had gotten out of circulation, probably, you know, uh, soon after he came to this country in the 20s. And when he gave those to me, that kind of catapulted my interest in both Barber and Liberty Seated coins. You know, when I started being um, serious collecting, uh, David Lawrence told me about the Barber Coin Collector Society, the BCCS, and I became a member and just over the years started being much more active and active. And when the uh, previous president decided to retire, Phil Kerrigan, I moved into the position. So how long have you been collecting in general and uh, how long have you been focused just on barber coinage? Well, I started collecting in fourth grade and I probably started putting a barber dime set together, I think it was sixth, sixth grade or thereabouts and was, you know, buying lower-grade dimes and had most of a set, you know, while I was a teenager. So I've been doing, you know, barbers for a long time. And, of course, when I went away to college, I had no money or anything, and I resumed collecting, you know, after I uh, graduated and got a real job with real income. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That sounds like a story that's probably familiar to at least a few people in the hobby. Many people. (laughs) <laughs> right. So what is it that you think attracts collectors to Barber subsidiary coinage and the other designs of Charles Barber? Is there something about his work or the history behind those series that's particularly evocative to the people who specialize in it? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a number of things. I mean, some people just love the design. You know, we all have different artistic tastes and some people don't like the design at all and others think it's the best one ever. But one of the things I think that really makes the Barber coins special is just the way he engraved them. They can survive down even to grades as low as very good and still be very attractive. And when you compare to a bunch of other series where dates partially rub off or the design really starts failing and the coins become unattractive, uh, the Barbers really hold up well to wear. So... 
you know, you can get collectors starting in barbers, and they don't have to get XF or AU coins to have an attractive piece. They can start in, like, grades of very good to fine, and that makes the series much more attractive to people. Plus, the, the rarity, when you compare it to more modern series or popular series, they're just barbers and also Liberty Seed are just so much more rare and yet don't really cost as much compared to some of the more famous rarities or, or key dates of a popular series. That seems like a few good points, especially for a, a new collector or a collector new to those series. What kind of learning curve is there? Was there? What other sort of advice would you give somebody who's dipping their toe in the barber water, so to speak? The first thing you know, I learned, again, as a, an adult collector, and again, pointed to this direction by David Lawrence, is the reference books. And for barbers, the silver pieces especially, Dave did the complete guide to barber dimes, quarters, and half dollars back, you know, 20 to 30 years ago. But those books today are still probably the best general references in this, those series. Yeah, they still stand up. They really do stand up the time. And, and again, one thing you look for in a good reference book is it should be written by someone who's actually collected and studied that series for years and years and years, you know, versus somebody who's just writing a book based on internet research and things like that. So Dave Lawrence basically built a whole business around barbers. And so he was the right guy to write the books. And so he, you know, his books say, you know, how scarce is this date in this grade? And you know, what we found through various uh, rarity surveys from the Barber Coin Collector Society since those books came out is that his rarity estimates in those books really stand up to time, that they're really uh, spot on. Organizationally, it sounds like the Barber Coin Collector Society has worked alongside researchers in addition to cultivating a space for hobbyists interested in Barber coinage to, to gather. In your role as president, what functions do you carry out for the organization and what space, aside from the obvious, providing space for barber coin collectors, what else do you hope to do in the hobby space? What, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish in the industry? Well, one of the things with the Barber Society that's just always been important is uh, education. Once I got more active in the club, I mean, we're, you know, we're just a group of, of members, and so... It's up to the members to provide the value to each other. So in addition to the quarterly journal, which contains articles from our members, education has just become paramount. So at coin shows and events, we'll often have a table with exhibits, but we'll also try to have either a meeting or educational programs on the agenda where we're teaching attendees various topics. And so I'd say education's really been the most important thing from my aspect for the Barber Club as well as the Liberty Seated Club. And we just continually get asked to do more and more educational programs by show organizers around the country. So one of the outlets or results of that educational efforts came in 2018 at the uh, World's Fair of Money from the ANA. You put together what I think universally was recognized as a pretty remarkable collection of artifacts from the Barber family. How did you come to assemble that collection, and uh, how did you come in contact with Barber's descendants? Can you walk us through the process of building that exhibit and explaining what was in there? Sure, uh, and it was uh, it was really a remarkable experience. 
in January of last year, I was, I believe, in Houston at that show, and I simply got an email message to the club from the wife of one of Charles Barber's great-grandsons. And the message was basically, we have some of Charles Barber's medals, my husband is a great-grandson, and we have other things, we'd just like some advice. And uh, it turned out that they lived less than five miles out of my way when I was driving home to New England. <laughs> so they invited me to stop over, and yeah, the medals they had were were interesting, but you know, when I saw the other stuff, it was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I found out that uh, he had a brother in the Boston area that had more William Barber-related items. And as the author of the 20 Cent book, a co-author of the 20 Cent book and a collector of trade dollars, William Barber is on my radar, too, as well as being the father of Charles. So that's how it all started. And I met both brothers and their wives, and they were just really enthusiastic in sharing a lot of these uh, artifacts with me, and from presidential proclamations to a flag from Teddy Roosevelt to original pencil and pen sketches of coin designs and the diary of Charles Barber's daughter where she documents the trip to Europe in 1905. And, and just reading those things and seeing Charles Barber's handwritten notes on mint memos, it just allowed me to learn a lot about the man. And, you know, mostly both Barber's, the people, you know, previously really didn't know much about them at all, personally. So that's kind of how it got started. And we just kept on I kept on writing articles, and they kept providing the things for photography and scanning and publication, and eventually we just had the idea of doing a huge exhibit for both William and Charles Barber, and uh, we had 12 cases of historical artifacts on display at the, at the Philadelphia A&A last year, and then we reprised it in Baltimore a few months later, and then in Manchester, New Hampshire a month after that, so... Uh, yeah, it was a phenomenal experience, and you know we were able to completely rewrite the history books on particularly Charles Barber, where we refuted uh, a number of the commonly held myths about the man. Things like Charles Barber and George Morgan didn't get along. We found real proof that that was not at all the case, and uh, as well as a, a warm personal relationship with President Teddy Roosevelt, when a lot of people think Barber was not liked by the man. So. It was really an honor to take myths, which I knew fundamentally were probably not true and, and could actually prove it, and uh, were able to you know, literally retell the story of uh, Charles and also introduce the world to William Barber, because most people don't even know he even existed. Do members of the Barber Coin Collector Society do much with the coinage of William Barber? I mean, William Barber obviously only did the trade dollar, the reverse of the 20 cent piece. And, you know, and, and a number of different patterns. Is there a lot of interest in William Barber's work among some of the Barber coin experts? Uh, no, not really. Traditionally, uh, William has been under the auspices of the Liberty Seated Collectors Club because even though the trade dollar, for instance, isn't Gobrecht's original design, it is a seated figure of liberty. And, uh, and the 20 cent piece is, you know, a, basically a rush together engraving of Gobrecht's original design because of the order from the mint director, but 
William Barber has been, you know, a little of interest, but primarily it's the, the focus of the Liberty Seated Collectors Club. One of the things that seems to have been popular in numismatics over the last 10 years or so has been this uh, return to older designs, whether that's the 2009 Ultra High Relief, there's, you know, back in 2001, the, uh, the Buffalo Silver Dollar, and, you know, there's legislation now that would celebrate the Morgan Dollar and Peace Dollar and, and so on. What kind of um, support would there be or has there been for folks who want to see the Barber design reprised or the Seat of Liberty designs reprised? Well, actually, that's actually a very interesting question. Part of the discovery with the Barber material were some original pencil and pen sketches by William of what would have been the country's first commemorative coin had they ever been made. And Back in uh, the 1870s, we simply hadn't done commemorative coins yet. Uh, and he did a beautiful Liberty Head design on what would have been a commemorative quarter to celebrate the beginning of the nation's second century. And, you know, these designs, it never made it to the pattern stage, so no one outside the family had ever seen these designs. Well, we had them on display, you know, at the big exhibits, and I spent some time with the director of the U.S. Mint, David Ryder, and proposed an idea to him. And I actually wrote up the proposal and sent it to him that we consider using that design for a 2026 commemorative because that would be the 250th anniversary of the U.S. So I actually proposed that we do that. Uh, and I said, wouldn't it be really cool to have, because we know the Mint's going to have a number of commemoratives for the 250th. So I said, wouldn't it be really cool to have a design, a never-before-seen design from the fifth chief engraver of the U.S. Mint, and then potentially have two of his great-great-grandsons on hand for the uh, ceremonial issuance of those uh, commemoratives. And uh, he generally liked the idea, and it's uh, it's a long way off, but uh, hopefully that's one example where we'll see uh, William Barber's work uh, come to life uh, like it was originally intended. That's interesting because we know that there's some news coming out of the uh, U.S. Mint Forum yesterday and I think the day before or today talking about some proposals for 2026 de uh, coin design changes. So, of course, we'll have to monitor that and see whether this turns out to use your suggestion. That's a that's a great idea, though, and uh, certainly a way to tie past and present and uh, really promote the hobby in general. So, very cool. Right. So, and, and whether or not it would be a circulating coin or just a commemorative, you know, because, you know, maybe they're going to do something like they did for the Bicentennial with the special reverses and, you know, their actual, this regular issue circulating coinage or whether it'll be relegated to a commemorative. But I know that Tom Urum, I don't know if that's pronouncing his last name right, uh, from PAN, he's on the, the Citizens Committee. He also has been given a copy of the proposal, and as they go through their discussions in the coming years, you know, he's a supporter of that as well. So it should get at least its, its valid attention. So we'll see. They're not working on 2026 items quite yet, but uh, it won't be long. Well, that's great. Just to, just to even get the idea into the discussions and into the pipeline, I imagine would be would be a tremendous success. So that's that's a fabulous idea. And in sort of a similar vein, in addition to your work with the, the Barber Coin Collector Society, you serve as the director of education for the Liberty Seated Collectors Club. 
Could you talk a little bit about what that kind of a position entails and what are some challenges facing both clubs and sort of the hobby more broadly when it comes to things like outreach and education? You know, the reason I was a perfect fit for the role with the Liberty Seated Club is because of what I do with the barbers and what I've just always done. We do have many members between the two clubs. So I would say there are many members of the Barber Club that are also Liberty Seated members, and, and so a lot of the folks at our exhibit tables belong to both clubs. So it was a perfect role for me to sort of expand. The challenge, I think, for the hobby is we have diminishing numbers of collectors because there's not enough young people coming into the hobby to replace the old people. They're leaving the hobby in one way or the other. So how can we somehow grab the attention of the new collectors because bottom line is at some point 10 20 30 years down the line you know who are, who are going to take our coins the ones we've you know spent decades putting together in collections and so when you are sort of going for a decreasing sized audience the one way we really think is a, a good approach is to is to provide education and say here's why you should be interested in these kinds of coins, you know, whether it's the artistry or the rarity or the challenge in putting dates together. You know, there's a lot of different reasons people latch upon one or more of these various series. And so that's what we really try to get to and provide not only the technical details like dye varieties and, you know, new discoveries, to, but to also have other sort of non-technical topics like dealing, you know, looking at the artistry of the different designs and anecdotal stories about the acquisition of certain coins or, or the history upon, around their creation. I think that, that all of those different types of topics are going to be of interest to different audiences. And so we want to have something for everybody. That's been our challenge, and I think we've really done a pretty good job We've got, you know, new presentations with speaker notes on both clubs' websites. We want to promote it just not in, even in our clubs, but we encourage members, hey, if you want to do a presentation on barbers or liberty-seated coinage at your local coin club, go to our website, download a presentation, a PowerPoint with speaker notes, and give it to your club. And that way we're trying to, you know, spread the word a little bit more. You know, so far, you know, we've had a number of, members that have said they've done that and to very good results. We, both clubs are increasing in membership numbers, which is, I think, a very impressive thing these days. Very impressive these days, particularly a lot of clubs note that membership seems to be declining. So you're clearly doing something right. And I think the outreach is a key part of that, just because there are just a lot of people that don't know either club exists. And then once we you know start educating and tell them about us and, and show the kind of information that can be from the clubs is, is important. One other aspect for, I would say, more serious collectors is the networking. Both the Liberty Seated and Barber Clubs have members who are really generous with sharing their knowledge versus keeping it secret and proprietary. And so by you know discussing and teaching each other, we build networks of other collectors. So we have other people in the club we know collect the same things we do. And in many cases, the way you get rarest coins for your own collection is probably from another club member. And, and I'll give you an example. I just completed my Liberty Seated Dollar collection. 
by acquiring in 1851 in very fine. Well, that's an extremely rare coin, and you can always buy an, a mint state coin at auction, but I think there's probably fewer than 10 really circulated coins XF or below. So this coin went to my friend from the club 20 years ago, and he got it from a friend, and now it came to me. And during those times, that coin was never on the market. So it never showed up in a dealer's case at a coin show or in an auction. It went from member to member, and it's because he knew I was building that set and I knew he had one. And by doing a lot of things together, that coin came to me in time. And uh, so, you know, I think that kind of camaraderie and networking among dealers and, and collectors is very, very important to, to the serious collector to try to finish their, their sets. Well, I'm glad you brought up your, your Liberty Seated dollar set, which I, I remember hearing you had, you had just completed. What were some of the challenges? Assembling any complete coin set is a some degree of a challenge, but the, the Liberty Seated Dollar collection is especially difficult. Could you briefly talk about some of the challenges associated with that set and how you overcame those challenges? Well, again, Seated Dollars, and then this can be said for a lot of other series as well, but for, for the Liberty Seated Dollar set, it took me 18 years to build that set. And the challenge is that there were just so many really scarce to rare coins in that set. There, there are really only a few truly common dates that you see at every coin show. They're always there. But there are dozens of dates in that series that are only known by a few hundred coins. In fact, I was just doing another presentation. The key date, 1893S Morgan Dollar. There are 10 to 12,000 examples known of that date. And yet we know how expensive it is. And yet when you have a date like 1855 Liberty Seated Dollar, and there are only about 300 known examples in all grades, and it costs less than the 1893S Morgan Dollar, you know, that kind of shows you the challenge because, you know, there are just very few pieces out there for a collector to obtain. And, uh, and it's just not a couple of dates, it's a lot of dates. So again, that's where being in a club or having a network of other collectors is so critical. And uh, I mean, when I completed my set, honestly, I got a number of emails, texts, and phone calls congratulating me. And because it's that big of a, that big of a feat. I mean, 18 years, that's newborn to college. That's incredible. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, that's how long it takes. Now, if I wanted to build a mint state set, I could just buy them all at auction. It'd be a much shorter task. It costs, you know, millions of dollars, but, uh, but you could do it. But to find the, the collector-grade examples where they're just so few known, and if you don't have unlimited budget, it's a real challenge. So another part of – to bring it back to the, the two clubs, uh, another part of both membership in the club and I imagine to some extent outreach are the maintenance of the, of the club journals that are, that are produced by the, the, the two clubs where people can contribute. From an editorial standpoint – what do you find is sort of our untilled earth in the area of Liberty Seated and Barber coins that might be good for new research or new writing? It's kind of all over the place. In both journals, uh, the Gobrek Journal and the, the Barber Journal, there are all sorts of articles. Some are research, you know, new discoveries of new varieties or new, we just had a discovery of a third Barber Dime reverse hub that no one knew about and was basically hiding in plain sight. 
So we've got, you know, a number of articles that are more technical and someone who's really studying the series and looking for a new die marriage that no one had ever seen before is, you know, one part of that. But then there's the whole, you know, more discussions on the artistry or the maybe the historical pedigree of a particular rare coin or famous coin. It can be uh, discoveries. We just had a barber journal, a, a woman from Idaho was on a kayaking trip with her husband, and she happened to look down and saw a shiny coin in the water. And it would happen to be an 1894-0 barber quarter that probably a miner had dropped in, you know, the late 1890s or early 20th century. What uh, river was that? I'm going to start kayaking. <laughs> she was kayaking. She would, they, were, they were crossing, you know, over land from one stream to another. And when they were getting into, I think it was the Little Payette River near Boise, she just happened to look down and she saw something shiny and it was a it was a, a high grade barber quarter that had been dropped there you know over a hundred years ago and just been in the river all that time and so she wrote a little story so you have you know all sorts of different kinds of articles because you know and we need that because we have some members who are very very expert collectors and are doing liberty seated or barber coinage for decades and we also have some new people who are younger collectors or have just started moving into liberty seated or barber coinage and they don't want only things about die marriages and things they want to know about the scarcity of certain issues or, or these other kinds of stories so that's always our challenge is to get a cross-section of articles well, and I can imagine that the more territory you cover, the more broad the interest is, and then those articles might find their way to someone who didn't know about barber coinage, and that might engage them. So it can be exactly right. And really positive is so far. I'm I'm the the journal editor for the Barber Society for I think close to five years now, and uh, I can also speak for Bill Booger, the editor of the Gilbert Journal, that thus far we've had no shortage of articles coming in. So interest in the members is, is certainly there. We're constantly getting new members, and we're, I think both clubs are saying that you know, some of our newer members are also starting to write articles, which is something we want. Well, and as two people who write about coins, I know Jeff and I are always happy to hear that there's, uh, that there's interest in both producing and consuming uh, numismatic writing, so that's, that's great to hear. John, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was a wonderful conversation. I imagine that our uh, listeners, particularly those who are interested in Barber and Seed Liberty coinage or who may become interested in Barber and Seed Liberty coinage, will uh, certainly appreciate uh, hearing your perspective. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, one thing I do want to add, and, and that's around, again, the education part, and that is both clubs have done classes at the uh, ANA Summer Seminar. Last year we did a Liberty Seated class, and this year, this coming year, 2020, we'll be offering a class on the barbers that kind of leverages all the discoveries from last year. So it's called The Legacy and Coinage of Father, Son, Mint Engravers, William and Charles Barber. So that'll be in 2020, and then we'll be offering the Liberty Seated class again, the following year. So that's just another way we provide education. If people can't come to a particular coin show, a lot of people do go to summer seminar, and so we want to provide that opportunity for them uh, as well.
Great. Well, that's that's a spectacular opportunity. I certainly hope that uh, any of our listeners interested might uh, might avail themselves of that. That's that's fantastic. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, John. This was this was a great uh, great conversation. You bet. We hope you've enjoyed this interview with John Frost, learning about barber coinage and all the ways that those can be collected. And we should remind you that if you're enjoying this podcast, subscribe, whichever podcast platform you use. And keep on tuning in every week. Not only do more listens, you know, help us and and not only do we appreciate the support, but if you want to hear the answer to this week's trivia question, you got to listen to next week's episode. Yes. And if you have ideas for future shows, you have questions for us, we can answer on the program. Send them to us. We are glad to interact with the listeners. Until then, though, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld podcast was brought to you by the CoinWorld Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.